Back in the woods, I am Jeremiah Wood, and this is the Trapping Today podcast. Great to have you here. I'm coming to you from a cabin out in the middle of the woods of northern Maine, overlooking a beautiful picturesque river valley in what I would call the mountains um, for this area. If you're out in Canada or Alaska or in the Rocky Mountain West, you'd probably call these hills, but... For Maine, these are pretty good mountains, and uh, it's it's uh, such a beautiful place to be. Uh, I've been here for a few days and, and loving every minute of it. Um, but all the way from deep woods in northern Maine, the podcast is brought to you wherever you're listening, whether that be down in the swamps of Louisiana, up in the Arctic, in Alaska, um, throughout the Midwest, anywhere you guys are listening. Some people overseas. Um, it's all brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S. Kyle and Kellen Cotts are sponsoring the podcast, and it's great to have them with us. If you can uh, support the podcast by ordering your trapping supplies from them, that would be great. So they have a full line of traps, uh, supplies, lures, baits, books, and DVDs. Check them out at CottsBros.com. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. So this episode of the TTP is going to be a little bit of a unique one where we're not going to talk about trapping news or trapping methods. We're going to talk more about the trapping lifestyle uh, and some history of, of trappers uh, out, out in the woods. So I had the opportunity to catch up on some reading. That's one of the benefits of being out in a cabin in the woods for a few days. Maybe you can't keep up with all the latest goings on on Trapper Man or, or the, the news as it relates to trapping. But the benefit is you can catch up on some reading. And so I, I got through a book I'm looking to get through for a few weeks. But I want to take you back a little bit to a project that I started working on this winter. And we talked a little bit in the past about ideas that I had for a project and, and one kind of came out of that whole thought process on, on different trapping related projects I wanted to get into. And I, I decided to pursue some research on a potentially putting together a book on a legendary trapper from Northern Maine. And I wasn't going to say much about it, but I got to thinking and I don't think there's a problem with talking with you guys about it, uh, even though it you know may or may not happen. It's kind of in the early stages. But the trapper's name is Walter Arnold. If you know much about Maine trapping or even just trapping history in general, Walter Arnold was, was a legend. He was a trapper from the woods of northern Maine. He was a lure maker and a trapping supply dealer. And he was a very popular writer. He wrote a lot of articles for Fur Fishing Game and other magazines of the day. So he was well known. He was in contact with trappers from throughout the country, throughout North America. Very interesting character. Did a lot of writing. He kept journals for basically from the time he was uh, in a young adult all the way through his entire life. He kept essentially a daily journal. And when Arnold uh, was getting along in years, he, he actually sold his trapping supply 
business and his well he sold he mainly had a lure making business that was the bulk of what he what he did business wise and he sold that lure business to Oscar Kronk who is in Wiscasset Maine and still has Kronk's animal lures and and those were you know lures developed by for the most part by Walter Arnold and sold uh, under the Arnold name and, until uh, Oscar uh, bought the business when he was getting along in years, Arnold knew the historical, potential historical value of a lot of his writings and his collection of different items. So he put them all together and he, uh, he, he donated all of his work, basically, to the University of Maine Library to be preserved for its historical value. So I've been spending a little time at the library uh, looking through some of his original notes and diaries and journal entries, articles and collections of letters and, and so on. And it's going to be a long process, but I hope to, uh, to, to get something uh, put together as a result. But one of the things that I came across, I was going through a bunch of old Arnold letters and there was one special folder that was dedicated to letters from Sam O. White. And I didn't really make a connection there. I didn't, I, this name Sam White did not ring a bell. So I started reading through them and it was, it was addressed Sam O. White, Fairbanks, Alaska. And there was letter after letter after letter. And uh, very friendly, joking, talking, trappings. Just a, a really interesting seeing the back and forth in, in the letters from Sam. And he seemed like an interesting cat. So I got home and I started uh, doing a little research uh, on Sam White. Turns out Sam was a fellow Mainer born, born in the woods of western Maine. And he became one of the most popular uh, bush pilots, wardens, and uh, overall woodsmen in the state of Alaska. So he's quite, a, quite an interesting character. And I found this book titled Sam O. White, Alaskan, Tales of a Legendary Wildlife Agent and Bush Pilot by Jim Reardon. If you don't know Jim Reardon, he was a... Um, fisheries and wildlife biologist. He was a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He actually spent some time in Maine, but most of his life spent in Alaska. And Jim was a bush pilot and a historian. He is the one that put together the stories from folks like uh, Sidney Huntington. His book, Shadows on the Koyukuk, is stories told from uh, to, to Jim by Sidney Huntington legendary native trapper from the uh, Koyukuk River region. Uh, bush pilot Andy Anderson had a book that, that was told to Jim Reardon. Jim put it together. And he has a, a number of different books and articles about Alaska historical figures. So this book uh, about Sam White is about 400 pages long. And it's, it's mainly writings that Sam put together in his later years and uh, uh, stories relayed to Jim and research that he was able to pull together that uh, goes through Sam's career as, 
as an Alaskan. It's a really good book. It's it's pretty fascinating. And I thought the interesting thing about this book from a trapper's perspective was how it talked about the different uh, the overall lifestyle of trapping in the bush of Alaska and how the demand for fur shaped that country and territory and how that changed over the years. So I'm going to spend a little time tonight going through Sam's uh, life and career and reading some passages out of this book to give you a little bit of perspective on, on the place and time. It was it was a, a really interesting time in the history of Alaska, and uh, a lot of changes um, took place throughout the course of Sam's career. Sam White was born in the little town of Eustis, Maine, which had a population of about 75 people in 1891. So this was a really early time in Maine's history, especially in that western Maine area. It was far from much civilization. He was actually born on a farm on the edge of the woods, and his family made a lot of their living either from farming or from what they could shoot or catch, fish they could catch. He actually was uh, an experienced bear trapper as a very young man, and he would trap and shoot uh, multiple bears every year. Sam did, did other trapping. He learned how to trap from family members. He actually had uncles who fought in the Civil War, so just to give you an idea of the, the timing and the, 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 you know, how, how far back uh, his history goes. So Sam had a little bit of a, um, a problem that we Mainers all seem to have, and that was he from the time he was a young kid, he dreamed about going to Alaska. And I, I can't really explain the exact reasons uh, that that is so common, but for some reason, uh, people, so many people in rural Maine dream about Alaska. And this has gone on for a very long time and uh, apparently all the way back to at least the late 1800s. Um, I think sometime in the mid 1800s, don't quote me on this, but Alaska was was purchased uh, by the United States from Russia. And of course, there was a long period of time uh, before Alaska became a state. I think that was like 1959. But in in that interim, you know, Alaska was a territory of the United States. And there were there were a large number of people from different areas that that pioneered and uh, and moved to Alaska. I mean, I, I when I was a young man, I dreamed about moving to Alaska, um, trapping in the woods. Uh, even though nowadays there is no money in trapping, and it's very difficult to to be able to swing that. Um, I have friends who did who dreamed about that. Uh, my uncle, when he was a kid, dreamed about moving to Alaska and, and living off the woods there. And, and a whole w- wide variety of different people that I've known over the years of, of differing ages have, have had that dream. I think part of it is that in the lower 48, Maine is one of those few places, and particularly in uh, the eastern United States, Maine's one of the few places that resembles Alaska in a lot of ways. So those of us who, who love the wild areas of, of the woods of northern Maine, 
you know, Alaska was attractive because it's, it's that much wilder and bigger and less densely populated. So, um, it's just sort of a, a big main that hasn't been settled by man in, in a lot of ways. It was interesting when Sam was coming up in the early 1900s, a, a lot of the area that he grew up in um, was was virgin timberland, uh, unroaded, uncivilized, unsettled. And um, Alaska offered that, but so, so, so much more. Uh, in, in adventure, in vast land area, and in, in beautiful views, and river valleys, and mountains, and lakes, uh, game, fish, and game, um, just uh, a little bit like Maine, but so much more. So Sam became a lumberman. He was a lumberjack in Maine. He scaled lumber. He ran uh, a one of the old Lombard log haulers, which was a steam log hauler that pulled sleds full of, of lumber over the snow in the wintertime. Um, he was married in 1915, had three kids, and he went off to war. Uh, he fought in World War I. When Sam got out of the military, he was hired on with the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey. And that he kind of part of the reason for doing that is he had heard talked with fellow uh, soldiers about Alaska and he really wanted to go there and he was hoping he could get a job that would have him stationed out there uh, but he started doing um, doing work in places like Utah and Arizona and basically this what this was was a um, crews that were sent out to to do some of the early mapping and survey work that was required to improve the accuracy of the like the topographical maps that were out there. And so, uh, after a time, he was sent to Alaska to to do reconnaissance work for the Coast and Geodetic Survey. And what he did was go out um, to very remote areas, and the problem that the government had with Alaska is so much of it was unmapped and the stuff that was mapped was had not been ground truthed so there were places up, laid out on a map and um, for instance the position of a particular any particular village or river or mountain could be off by as much as 15 to 30 miles that's how big and vast the area was and how unmapped and untraveled it was Remember, this was before planes, uh, so there was really no way for people to, to, to accurately map an area without actually getting on the ground and doing it. So a lot of what Sam did in those early years was go out to remote areas and climb to the very tops of mountains, and he would establish stations on the mountains. And a lot of times this would be a light station where he, he'd have a light on the top of the mountain and he'd go to a nearby mountain and he would measure uh, he would he would work out the angles uh, from one mountain to the other and through you know, basic geometry uh, from peak to peak to peak and measuring all the different angles they were able to get the distances each peak was from the other um, so they started to work out distances and they 
they mapped all those kind of um, off of one another. And after a time, they were able to connect certain areas and get the exact distances between towns and uh, between river valleys and mountains and so on. This was a lot of really difficult on the ground work. They were out on their own for weeks at a time. They packed in with horses a lot of times. A lot of times they used dogs and other situations. They traveled by canoe up, the, up and down rivers. Um, what he was doing is working for the Coast and Geodetic Survey in the summer, and then he was off in the winter. So Sam's first winter in Alaska, his brother came out and joined him, and his brother worked with him on the survey for a while, and they decided they were going to spend their winter trapping in Alaska. So Sam and his brother Pearlie had experienced trapping in Maine, and they figured, well, you know, most of the species are the same that we trapped in Maine. And one of the things that I'll probably talk about later on, or you'll, you'll see later on, is Sam was such an, a good woodsman, and the reason he was so successful in Alaska, not only was his, his positive attitude, hard work ethic, and just a, a lack of fear of anything, is that his time in the woods of Maine really prepared him well to, to survive in, in Alaska because basically a lot of the conditions, the cold, the snow, the remoteness um, in, in Alaska are very similar to Maine. It's just on a, on a much greater scale. You know, our, our super cold weather here in northern Maine is 40 below zero. Um, the majority of, of the really cold weather, you know, you're talking 20 below. Of course, in Alaska, that's 50 to 65 below zero. So it's, it's just everything in a, in a much bigger way. Um, but, but Sam and Pearlie were going to go beaver trapping. So they talked around with old timers and tried to figure out well, where would be a good place to go set up a trap line. And a few of the old timers told them, you should go on the Anchorage to McGrath Trail. So this was what is now known as the Iditarod Trail. Uh, the trail where the sled dog race um, goes through. And this was a very uh, well-traveled area because uh, everybody traveled by dog team back then. There were no planes or anything. So Sam and his brother patched together a dog team, uh, basically dogs that were given to them or they could barter for. And they ended up um, going to the town of Nancy. Uh, they stayed uh, with Bill Austin and his wife. They went to the Susitna Station Roadhouse um, and then over to the uh, uh, Squentna Crossing Roadhouse. And at this roadhouse, they met two trappers, Mac McElroy and Jack Rimmer. And these guys were people who they kind of ran the roadhouse and they trapped. Uh, so... So there, this was kind of their trapping area that, that Sam and his brother were, were in. So they started talking to him like, you know, where can we trap to, to be kind of not, not on your trap lines? And, and, uh, and the guys are like, well, what are you going after? And they said, well, we want to trap beaver. Because Sam and Pearlie had trapped beaver through the ice in Maine, so they were pretty competent beaver trappers. And, and these guys said, you can't catch beaver through the ice in Alaska. There's just too much cold and snow. So we don't even try. So we shoot beavers in the spring. We don't even bother to trap them through the ice. 
So they worked out a deal. Sam and his brother said, well, um, can we trap on your line if we just trap for beaver, nothing else? And they said, absolutely. So they went out uh, and were going to be under ice beaver trappers and had basically all the land that they wanted to get the job done. So they went out in the woods. They found a, a nice site. They built a cabin that was four logs high and pitched a tent on that, um, at, on that platform. And they started trapping through the ice. Uh, their first check, I think they set 14 traps. And uh, one of the old timers came over to visit them to see if, uh, if they could catch anything because he didn't even know how to trap beaver through the ice. He didn't know it was possible. So he was kind of looking for some entertainment. They went and checked those first 14 sets and they caught six beavers. And the guy was convinced. And uh, Sam and his brother ended up with 66 beavers that winter. Uh, it was just a small catch for them. But Jack and Mac ended up uh, more than doubling that catch just from learning Sam's methods of underage beaver trapping. So they kind of um, advanced things a great way in, in underage beaver trapping in Alaska. They came out in, to Fairbanks and they, or Anchorage and they sold their um, fur and they got a pretty incredible price, made a lot more money than they, than they thought they would. So Sam settled in Fairbanks in 1924. He, he lived there as a young man and he actually ended up living there for most of the next 50 years. And the book goes through a few stories of young Sam going out around Fairbanks and on adventures with dog teams, uh, sheep hunting, moose hunting, just going in different areas, dog sledding, meeting up with trappers, stopping at different roadhouses. Uh, and then it goes into more of his, his recon work, he, a canoe trip up the Saltra River, uh, the recon work he did on, from Shaw Creek to Eagle, Eagle to Fairbanks. They, him and another guy traveled from, from Eagle to Fairbanks by canoe and then by foot, just stopping, stopping at these different roadhouses that used to be spaced out along the trails before planes. Um, Sam returned to Maine that winter. And uh, just one of the things that, that he noted when, when he was there was, you know, it was good to visit with, with old friends and family, but Maine seemed different after being in Alaska. He said, everything looked small. <laughs> so he really wanted to get back to Alaska. He ended up working for the survey in Minnesota, Iowa, uh, New Orleans, but he always wanted to go back to Alaska. So something interesting uh, um, happened and a little bit of twist of fate and a little bit of Sam's doing actually did get him back to Alaska. When Sam was finishing up his work for the geodetic survey, he stopped in at the game, uh, I, I believe it was the Federal Game Commission um, offices and wanted to give them his notes that he'd made while he was out um, doing survey work on the game populations in different river valleys that he had worked in. So he kept good notes on numbers of, of uh, caribou, elk, or not elk, sorry, moose, um, bears, and wolves. And he, he had detailed notes. He had, he had detailed maps. And he thought, you know, these maps could be useful for people that were, were looking to, to learn more about about wildlife or, or do enforcement work or, or whatever. And it didn't take very long after that 
that Sam was called by the Alaska Game Commission in 1927, and they wanted to put him to work. So, I'm going to read a little bit about, about that. Um, Sam's arrival in Alaska in 1922 had changed his life. As a boy, he had dreamed about Alaska. His first taste of Alaska settled his future. The lifestyle, the frontier spirit, the challenges suited him. Alaska was everything he had dreamed, and he determined to make it his home. His early life in Maine, farming, logging, and guiding was the perfect preparation for life in Alaska. He says, In 1925, I made notes of game populations from Shaw Creek to Eagle. The Alaska Game Commission had just been formed. They had a few maps of the interior, so on my way to Washington, D.C. that fall, I stopped at Juneau and returned, turned in my notes and some maps over to them. I had the maps marked where there was horse feed, camping areas, and trails. It's probable that he applied for a position with the Game Commission during that Juneau visit. And then, of course, um, Sam was offered the job shortly after that. He actually ended up getting divorced. Um, his wife um, did not want to move to Alaska, so he, he really wanted to go. Um, she really wanted to stay with her family, so unfortunately, um, that wasn't going to work. And so Sam moved on. He, he was stationed as a game warden um, at Fort Yukon, Alaska, at age 36. And this was really interesting um, time in Alaska's history because it was not a state. Alaska was a territory at the time. And as mentioned in that reading, uh, the Alaska Game Commission had just been formed. The Game Commission was a combination of the federal government. Um, I, it, it would have been maybe what is now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, a number of people appointed who were Alaska residents who made up this uh, this commission. And these commissioners met and made recommendations on uh, game laws in Alaska. And the federal government typically uh, um, went with their recommendations and passed different laws. But prior to this, this 1927 formation of the Alaska Game Commission, there were essentially no fishing game laws in Alaska. What this meant is people people moved to Alaska, they went in the woods, they they ran trap lines, they hunted and fished, and there were no limits. There were no seasons, closed seasons, there were no bag limits. They they basically could do what they wanted. And and for pioneering adventurers who just wanted to get away from society and make a living on their own, that was pretty ideal. You know, they, they moved there partly because there were no limits. So the first regulations were actually printed in May of 1925, just before the formation of the Alaska Game Commission. And some of these regulations included, they closed the seasons for fur bears in the summer, so you couldn't trap fur bears when the fur was not prime. They completely closed the state to marten trapping. They completely closed it to beaver trapping. They made it illegal to kill cow and calf moose, so you can only kill bulls. Uh, they made it illegal to use poison to kill wildlife. Poisoning was a very common way of, of killing wildlife uh, back in the day, and it was mainly it was killing fur bearers. 
because uh, you couldn't kill uh, wildlife to eat but with poison you poison yourself uh, but what these guys would do is purchase strychnine which was a extremely potent poison and they would take a carcass of an animal inject it with strychnine and anything that fed on that carcass would die of poisoning oftentimes they wouldn't go very far immediately like coyotes like wolves would go and start feeding on a caribou carcass that had been injected with poison and and within seconds of ingesting it they would be dead then birds would go eat the caribou or the wolf carcass and the birds would die of poisoning as well so it was a pretty nasty stuff and early on a lot of people used it without really thinking much about the the ramifications of poison um, but uh, it didn't take very long for that to become a no-no and it was outlawed pretty quick uh, of course you needed to buy a trapping license and there were resident trapping licenses and non-resident trapping licenses um, so those were the basic rules and it was interesting it was this it was this different culture um, Sam noted that there was really no understanding among people who lived out there of the need for fish and game laws. Uh, Fort Yukon, for instance, he one of the things he mentioned in the book is in his diary was certain people in Fort Yukon are very much concerned over the arrival of a game warden, and uh, they they just really they really didn't have much use for for the rules and laws because they weren't used to them. They, and they had always been. Uh, around in a time of abundance and they they for the most part most people didn't quite understand or make the connection that uh, it might be necessary to implement regulations in order to conserve the wildlife for long-term um, uh, long-term sustainability of the population long-term persistence of the population so it was an interesting time so this guy sam white is hired as uh, a wildlife agent that was what they called uh, game wardens early on and he was going into an area where there was essentially no law until he started and then you know the laws were on the books but they weren't being enforced so he was going into these remote trap lines and remote villages and he was the first warden anybody had ever met and the first time they had actually found out that oh um, yeah I guess there's going to be some enforcement of these laws. It's not just something written on the books. There's actually someone checking up on us to see that we're following the rules. And uh, before that, uh, obviously, it, when Sam started, he uh, encountered a very high level of um, of lawbreaking because people just had done things the way they'd always done them, and, and uh, there was no impetus previously to uh, to actually start changing their ways and, and follow those rules so let's look at a few different uh, parts of the book um, first I'm going to read part of Sam's early going in uh, in the Fort Yukon area after he was uh, hired on so it goes I arrived in Fort Yukon at the beginning of winter 1927 the first resident federal fish and wildlife agent for the area. This struck many of the old timers as rather funny. The need of regulatory laws for game and fur wasn't apparent to them. Fort Yukon residents were more or less hostile to game conservation. 
Until I arrived, everything had been wide open. Bag limits for moose and caribou, although in the books, were ignored, as were closed seasons. Same with fur bearers. It was mostly an Indian village, about the biggest native village in the interior. Natives were lukewarm to the conservation of wildlife. The white old-timers were hostile at first. The local commissioner, who acted as judge in legal matters, was also quite hostile. The town was divided into two factions, the old-timers and the mission. The mission was generally hostile toward game law enforcement, but after I'd been there for three or four months, they warmed up a bit. The next several years produced an abundance of fur, and I doubt that my presence the first year had little effect on the rise or fall of fur bears. Same with moose and caribou, both of which were plentiful. It was a beginning that had to be made. The situation over the next many years was going to change. Most locals thought the free and easy way of using fur and game would last forever. Fort Yukon was a great fur center in those years, when fur was king in Alaska. Can you imagine living at that time? I know I've talked about it before, about in that book, Hunters in the Northern Forest. Uh, that book was written back in uh, late 60s, early 70s. And a lot of the Richard K. Nelson writings were directed at the, the past um, around the 1930s when, when fur was really booming. So this book, this Sam White book, um, and Sam started in Fort Yukon was right around the time that that was going on. Um, he was right in the middle of it. It was a great collecting point for fur in all Alaska. Nearly all the fur from the upper Porcupine River came down through Fort Yukon as did the huge catch of muskrats on the old Crow Flats in Yukon Territory. The Yukon Flats themselves yielded great quantities of fur, in the backcountry to the north, as well as to the south as far as Beaver Creek, Birch Creek, and Preacher Creek contributed. This was truly frontier country then. The airplane had not yet changed lives, and all mail arrived and left by river steamboat or by dog team. Great dog sled loads of fur went out of Fort Yukon during winter and spring, they were bulky and in some ways resembled loads of hay under canvas. There was adventure tied up in each bundle of fur, of which nothing will ever be known. Trappers disappeared and there were other tragedies. The old-timers of this period were frontiersmen of the first magnitude. They were hardy, rugged chaps who worked hard and when it came to play, the same. However, there was little leeway for play in the lives of these trappers. Playtime was during the all-too-short summer. Most came downriver from their trap lines in early June and had to return back up to the northern rivers in late July with boatloads of supplies and equipment so as to get to their operating grounds before freeze-up. Trappers south of the Yukon had a little more leeway, but they too were usually gone in early August. Of course, there were many who trapped on the Yukon Flats who usually came into Fort Yukon during Christmas holidays. A few combined summer fishing with their winter trapping. They sold fish for dog feed, and fed their own dogs with them. The dog population on the Yukon was immense. Nearly everyone, including the Indians, had a team from 7 to 18 dogs. George Davies and Bert Stewart ran the picturesque two-story log Fort Yukon Hotel. It was a paying concern. During the fur boom of those years, it grossed an average of $250 a day. So Fort Yukon was quite a place back then. So not only did the trappers make a lot of money during that fur boom, so did the, the traders who established trading posts up and down the river. And uh, Sam writes a lot about the different traders, fur buyers, and uh, I'm just going to read a little bit about one of them. 
but throughout the book there's there's a whole pile of stories from different different uh, traders Sam was um, going up the Yukon River doing a, a little a patrol um, or the Porcupine River doing a patrol it was 62 below when I arrived at Rampart House just across the Canadian border two native dogs there froze to death that night and were promptly chopped up and fed to their teammates Rampart House sits on the side of a hill atop the steep banks of the Porcupine River. Winds sweep through there, and it's very cold. I remained two days, conferring with the RCMP. Dan Cadzow operated a trading post at Rampart House. He was a powerful character who annually took in about a quarter of a million dollars worth of fur. A lot of the fur was exchanged for groceries and clothing. The local native women made much of their clothing themselves, and they were a well-dressed bunch. They were also well-fed as far as meat diet went. That's about all they were used to with a little flour and beans. Kadzow's volume of trade goods was not large. Silver dollars was the smallest change at his trading post. Six cream crackers, such as came in barrels, a dollar. Four candles, a dollar, and so forth. Under these conditions, my grub box didn't get half filled. Dan had a two-story frame house with hardwood floors, the only frame house north of the Yukon. Rachel, his native wife, was a very fine old lady, respected by everyone. Dan often made trips stateside, accompanied by Rachel. Sometimes he chartered a special train while touring the country. He acquired a new boat every year and didn't take pains to preserve the ones during the old ones during breakup. The old frame house is abandoned now. Last time I was there, it sat forlornly empty, its white paint and green trim peeling. Rachel lived there alone for several years after Dan died. Sam often visited those roadhouses and uh, traders while he was patrolling the trap lines of different trappers and, uh, and making sure they were complying with the laws. Later in January, I left Fort Yukon to make a patrol be via Beaver to Caro and Big Squaw and returned via the Chandelar and the native village, now no then known as Chandelar Village, now called Venati. I followed the mail trail from Fort Yukon to Beaver and a trail of sorts from Beaver to Big Squaw. I left most of my outfit in a shelter cabin at Arenzit Crossing and followed a trapper's trail up the Arenzit. The trap line belonged to Joe Roberts, a Portuguese national. He had roughly $7,000 in fur, which was a heap of money then. He also had a new and very well-built cabin. He could sit on his bunk and eat off the table and also attend to the cooking on the stove. He had about 75 pounds of sausage made from moose meat and moose casings, which was expertly spiced and delicious. He was also eating lynx mink, lynx meat, but did not urge me to partake. So, I don't know about you guys, but one of the coolest things about these old time stories to me is is the individuals, the people that settled and the people that uh, moved into these areas and built cabins and ran trap lines. Uh, they were adventurers. They lived hard, uh, rugged lifestyles. They were tough. Um, it was an extremely dangerous profession. And they were so unique and just larger than life characters. So I, I really, that's kind of my favorite part about reading all this old stuff, um, is the stories of these people. And I, I have uh, a little bit of Sam's writing on uh, the, the old timers of Fort Yukon. So just, uh, kind of, he came, he came into Fort Yukon around the time. A lot of these guys were, 
uh, were very active on trap lines. They, many of them had been prospectors and had moved in with the gold rush um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they stuck on and, and spent a lot of time uh, trapping. When the fur boom was on, they, that's kind of how they made their living. So this section is on Fort Yukon old timers. The fur business, oh, he, he's got a little bit of a, just a quote early, right in the beginning of this chapter. The old timers of this period were frontiersmen of the first magnitude, hardy, rugged chaps who worked hard and played hard. The fur business was booming when I arrived in Fort Yukon in 1927. Trappers based in Fort Yukon worked in both Alaska and Canada, trapping mink, otter, weasel, wolverine, wolf, and lynx, plus muskrats by the hundreds of thousands. At the time, for every dollar, you had a hundred cents, which went a long way. Fur was a high-priced item. A trapper could get $65 for a lynx. Uh, sadly, today trappers are still getting $65 for a lynx. And $65 is not worth anywhere near what it was back then. Some of the trappers I knew at Fort Yukon caught 50 to 60 lynx during a trapping season. Most of the muskrats that came through Fort Yukon were from the old Crow Flats in Canada. It was tremendous rat country. The trappers there lived pretty tough. I once, I was once there on the 8th of May when it was 30 degrees below zero, and I landed a wheel plane on the ice. There are hardly any trees there. It's mostly marshland, and the river roams very crookedly. Many of the trappers on the old Crow Flats had no tents, just a tarp. They rolled up in it in the worst of weather, or they'd use it for shelter, moving it from one side to the other, whichever way the wind blew. Many of the trappers were truly well-to-do in terms of money. Some invested stocks in Canada, in stocks in Canada, Canadian Pacific Railroad was popular, in the U.S. Most of them had bank accounts in Canada. So I'm not going to read all of these, but I thought I picked some of the uh, sections on old-timers, individual old-timers that I thought might be kind of interesting. So let's, let's read about some of these old-timers. Harry Horton was a successful fur trader at Fort Yukon. During his win first winter there, he trapped. The next winter, he set up a trading post and a prominent local native's daughter moved in with him as housekeeper. This arrangement prevailed for several years, but it was a thorn in the side of the local missionaries. They brought court action against him for cohabitation or some such charge, and the case was set over for the district court in Fairbanks. This was before the days of airplane transportation in Alaska. For the trial, a caravan of dog teams set out from Fort Yukon to Fairbanks, some taking government witnesses, some taking witnesses for the defendant. I heard that the trial cost in the neighborhood of $80,000. The verdict favored the Hortons. Having shown the government that they did not have to get married, on their return trip to Fort Yukon they married and lived quite happily together for many years. In the early 1930s, Horton was feeling his age. He had amassed a sizable fortune, supposedly a quarter of a million dollars. He wanted to return to his former home in New York State. He gave his wife their house in Fort Yukon, settled a reasonable income on her, and went back to Albany, New York to end his days. At its heyday, Horton's store was a gathering place for the big-time poker players of Fort Yukon. I heard that a $1,200 kitty was not unusual there on almost any poker night. Waldo Curtis. Waldo C. Curtis was a trapper on the Porcupine River at Howling Dog. He was a New Englander from New Hampshire with a mischievous disposition. He was always jobbing someone. He was a good trapper and made good money, which he invested wisely. 
He also had plenty of money in the bank. Nevertheless, he persisted in living tough. When trapping muskrats on the old crow flats, he cooked 10 rats at a time by inserting them in a 5-gallon gasoline can, heads down and tails lopped over the side. He cooked them for one hour, then reversed them and cooked for another hour. He added one cup of flour and stirred. That made for one week's food for him. I first met him when I arrived at his cabin at Howling Dog. It was perched on the bank of the Porcupine River with a wonderful view across the river. It was in February, 45 degrees below zero, and late in the afternoon. I stayed overnight. Next morning, it had warmed to 30 below with the darndest howling blizzard in the north can kick up. I doubt if a man and dog team could have survived an hour in it. The storm lasted three days, during which I remained holed up with Curtis. One day, I was lying on a bunk and glanced at a hole in the ceiling logs, obviously made by a shotgun. It looked as if someone had been fooling with a shotgun and it had accidentally fired. Curtis, how'd that charge of shot get in your ceiling, I asked. Oh, hell, he said. That's where I shot a damn game warden last summer. <laughs> I was in Circle one April en route to Fort Yukon, where an old-timer, bowed with years and hardship, wanted to give away his seven-dog team. He was kind-hearted and didn't want them killed. I took one, a big stocky animal that looked very capable. He was covered with long hair right to the end of his nose. The hair was about eight inches long. It parted in the middle of his back and like a load of hay neatly hung down both sides. He was a great worker who was always digging in and needed no encouragement. Unfortunately, he was also a great fighter with a quick temper, especially if he decided some other dog in the team wasn't doing his share. On my three-day journey to Fort Yukon from Circle, he temporarily crippled two of my regular dogs. I soon discovered his secret weapon. He had a head and jaws like a grizzly bear, which looked innocent because he was covered with hair. Also, he had so much hair, other dogs couldn't easily bite him. All they got was a mouthful of hair. When I arrived at Fort Yukon, I ran into Waldo Curtis. Where'd you get that dog, he asked. Is he a good worker? I answered, I paid $35 for him in Circle. He's a young dog and a good worker. Curtis said, I'll give you $35 for him. My three dogs are so old, I need a young one to help them haul wood. I want the harness and chain with him. Okay, says I, and Curtis took the dog home. Two days later, I saw Curtis. Confound your hide. I should have known better. You're from New England, too, he blurted. What's wrong, Curtis? I asked, pretending innocence. Wrong. Yesterday, I had three dogs. Today, I have one. What happened? I asked, beginning to feel guilty. That darn dog of you I bought from you ate my old dogs up on the first trip of the woods. Then he laughed. If anything changed from then on, it seemed Curtis looked on me with more respect. We still remained fast friends. I sent him a check. I sent a check for half of the $35 to the old fellow in circle who had given me the dog. I never told Curtis the dog had been given to me. It seemed wise not to. Later, when I was flying into Fort Yukon for Wien Airlines with mail, freight, and passengers, Curtis told me he was expecting a case of whiskey and thought it would be on my next trip. Put it in a bag and pack it around through the woods to behind my cache at the cabin, he said. I'll meet you there. This I did. When I arrived with the goods, Curtis was there, but so was Mrs. Curtis. She gave me a withering look that made me cringe, then flounced into the cabin and loudly slammed the door. She didn't approve of booze. Curtis said, It appears to be the last time you can come to see me while Miss Curtis is here. On the contrary, I said, I'll have lunch with you on my next trip. He grinned at me and snorted. On my next flight to Fort Yukon, I had a quart mason jar chock full of strawberries and a pint of real cream. With these visible in my arms so they couldn't be missed, I brazenly knocked on the Curtis door. 
Mrs. Curtis jerked the door open and gave me a devastating look. Then she spotted the strawberries. Her mouth opened. For a few minutes, nothing came out. Then she said, come in. I happily entered. Curtis sat in the far end of the cabin, looking surprised. I handed the strawberries and cream to Mrs. Curtis. She asked, can you stay for lunch? I assured her I could and would be delighted. She brought out a rather, rather battered table from another room and put some of the loveliest linen on it that I had seen in many a year. She then set the table correctly and prettily, and we had lunch the likes of which I've never seen in Alaska. We had a delightful time. From then on, I took a great liking to Miss Curtis. I admired a lady who could set such a charming table in a trapper's cabin and who so easily overlooked my earlier transgression. As for Waldo, he commented, I've seen everything now. <laughs> How about Joe Ward? Joe Ward trapped just below Burnt Paw on the Porcupine River at Joe Ward's camp. He was English and had very pleasant mannerisms. Joe didn't always keep dogs. When he did have them, he didn't always use them on his trap lines. His trapline cabins were spaced one half day of snowshoeing distance apart. If the going was good, he could make the second cabin easily. If the going was tough and he was delayed, he could make the half day cabin. He kept blankets and grub at each cabin, placed there in the summer. During the summer, he also cut a good supply of wood for each cabin. Thus, in winter, he had no work to do, no dogs to care for, and he could concentrate on trapping. He always caught $6,000 worth of fur. Once he reached this goal, he pulled his traps, even though the season ran for another two weeks or even a month. As a result, his trap lines produced well year after year. Joe was a practical conservationist, without declaring himself to be one. He invested his money wisely and was well-to-do. He lived simply and independently. He had a cool and level head and much common sense. He was much respected along the Yukon and Porcupine Rivers. Harry Martin trapped on the Porcupine River, about 20 miles below Howling Dog. One of his cabins was six miles from the Curtis cabin at Howling Dog. He was a loner. He wanted no company, and he called on no one. He usually had six dogs and six small toboggans, which, when loaded with gear, he hitched individually to each dog. His caravan of toboggan-pulling dogs with Harry at their head must have been some sight. His cabin was built into a hill so that he had to build one end only, the hill made the far end. It was crude beyond words. Two dogs lived in the cabin with him, with kennels under his bunk. The place was always filthy. When the various trappers on the porcupine came down river after breakup, they got together for the trip to Fort Yukon, camping nights on river bars for the several-day trip. Not Harry. He pitched his lone camp across the river from the others. In Fort Yukon, he built a doghouse cabin far above town and stayed there while in town, which was never long. He outfitted as fast as he could and took off up the porcupine again. Harry got married on one of his trips to Port Yukon. No one seemed to know quite how it happened, but it did. It didn't last long, however. During winter, a few years after the marriage broke up, Harry was found dead in his cabin. One of his dogs defended the cabin and the body so vigorously that it had to be shot before the body could be removed for burial. Harry Healy was a smallish was smallish but hard as nails. Southbound, I once stopped at a trail cabin on the Porcupine River between Old Rampart and Rampart House. It was cold. The cabin had a good stove, and I fired it up for lunch. A frozen and animal-chewed caribou hindquarter laid on the floor of the cabin. There was also a two-pound lard pail in a corner, likewise on the floor. It was full of greenish mold. Ugh. 
I heaved both items out so I wouldn't have to look at them while eating lunch. As I started to eat, Harry Healy showed up with his long string of big dogs. He tied his sled to a tree to anchor the team and came in. Harry, you're just in time. I have enough lunch for both of us, I said. No, I cooked mine own lunch, he responded. Then he looked all over the cabin, under the bunk, under the stove and table. What are you looking for, I asked. Where's mine sourdough and where's mine caribou meat, he asked, kind of exasperated. I had heaved his treasures into a snowbank behind the cabin. I told him so and he retrieved them. He then thawed pieces of chipped green sourdough and chopped chips off the caribou leg and fried them on the stove. They must have tasted better than they looked or smelled because he ate with great relish while I had to avert my gaze. Harry disappeared one winter. It was generally believed he broke through the ice on the Yukon or some other river. Bill O'Brien, trapped on the Black River. Although he had trapped there for years, he still lived in a tent. He was rough and tough and lived hard. He had a team of nine large Malamutes. In the dead of winter, when it was very cold, he broke his leg. He managed to crawl to the tent and get to his sleeping bag. He couldn't cut firewood and he had none ahead. And I won't tell you the rest of the story because it's pretty sad. John Roberts was a loner at first, but he later married Miss Berglund, widow of John Berglund. The now Mrs. Roberts was the mother of three Berglund sisters, all of whom were as capable as any man on a trap line and in living in the woods. Mr. and Mrs. Roberts trapped on the Black River and had a couple of substantial caches with cabin and cabins there. At one time, while patrolling with an aircraft, I was at their place with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable Walter Bain. The Roberts fed us for a week and refused to take pay. We slept in a tent two of the girls had pitched for us across the creek from their cabin. The girls also brought us ice for water, swamp hay for our beds, and wood for our stove. When we returned to the Roberts place in the afternoons, the girls helped us take care of the airplane. The two sisters ran a long trap line and were catching a good amount of fur. By then, John Roberts was up in fur, or up in fur, up in years, and had obvious tremors. He could no longer get out on the trap line. Mrs. Roberts kept one year's supply of staples on hand at all times. She had preserved great quantities of wild berries, and we lived like kings while there, for she was an excellent cook. And, uh, and a note is Evelyn Berglund Shore's book, Born on Snowshoes, was reprinted in 1993, originally published in 1954. And, uh, and they're, they're, that's, that's a book basically about their life um, on that trap line and cabin. So there were there were a bunch of old timers there. They were unique characters, uh, all a little different. They're rugged and tough, and they lived tough. And life was hard. It was uh, it was a very challenging lifestyle. It was very rewarding, but it was also you know not without its risks. And uh, a lot of people a lot of people didn't make it. Um, but but quite a time. Um, imagine imagine the amount of freedom those people enjoyed, and and the ability to to make a living. Uh, catching fur and, and living off that trap line would have been pretty cool. So around that time, um, Sam decided that it was really getting to be difficult to travel with a dog team and on snowshoes, and he wasn't very efficient in his patrols. So he pushed and pushed. He, he met Noel Ween, who was... Um, co-founder of Ween Airlines, um, which was a very popular flying service in remote Alaska. And uh, Noel was basically the pioneer bush pilot in Alaska. 
and he his he and his brother Ralph taught Sam uh, to fly a plane. So Sam learned to fly. Um, he he bought a plane because the uh, Alaska Game Commission had no interest in in purchasing a plane or allowing him to fly a plane and are paying for it and so sam basically just bought a plane with his own money spent money to buy his own fuel and maintain the plane and he flew around and did his job um, over time he was able to convince the game commission that it was uh using a plane was an incredibly effective way of getting his job done and, and being efficient in patrolling and catching the bad guys so there's a there's a lot of different stories about um, his his uh, patrols both via plane and otherwise, um, and and we'll we'll talk about a little we'll go into a few different stories there. All right. Flew my own airplane for six or seven years to do my job as a wildlife agent, costing me personally around $15,000 because the game commission refused to reimburse me. That was the main reason I eventually had to sell my Swallow in 1937. Flying and keeping an airplane was expensive, and I couldn't afford to continue to subsidize the game commission. Money didn't come quickly and easily in those days. I didn't fly patrols for about a year. I got the game commission airborne against their will. They hadn't the slightest idea that planes would be of any value to them. I made game counts from the air. They hadn't realized it could be done, and I couldn't convince them. They regarded me as being a nut about airplanes, which, of course, I was. When I first flew around the country with my own plane, I created much havoc among trappers, fur buyers, and especially aliens who weren't properly licensed. Many aliens lived on the creeks and in the Yukon River Valley and elsewhere, people the Game Commission had never heard about. Most didn't have licenses. Some government officials surreptitiously helped these illegals dispose of their furs, making a little profit for themselves. Since an alien special license costs $100, a lot of these men trapped without benefit of license or had falsely taken out resident trappers' licenses, which were only $2. They didn't get much sympathy from me, for they were often hostile to the United States government. After about a year of my aircraft patrols, something of a rush on citizenship papers developed. The Air Patrol also helped to bring preseason and postseason trapping under control. My being able to fly patrols kept game violations down because people knew I could show up unannounced anytime in any place, especially in winter. I got some unheard of results with airplane patrols. At the time, some people who lived in the woods committed atrocities on the game. They didn't know how to defend themselves from my eyes in the sky because I could be on top of them so fast. My patrols, for the first time, gave some protection for the game and fur. Fur, of course, was one of those lifebloods of Alaska in those days. Years after I flew those early patrols with the swallow over the interior, some Indians told me, Before we got to be friends, Sam, we used to shoot at your airplane. I wondered where those holes in the fabric came from, now I know. Good thing I didn't know this at the time. I'd probably, I'd have probably put a steel plate under my seat. So over time, Sam transitioned from uh, patrolling on dog team to patrolling from the air. Here's one of his last patrols on dog team. One of my last patrols by dog team 
was into the backcountry about 130 miles from Fairbanks, where five trappers were reportedly feeding moose meat to their dogs on a very large scale. I called on all five with the same results. All were feeding moose to their dogs. At one empty trapper's cabin, I found parts of 21 moose, most of them cows and calves, and I don't imagine I found all the heads either in the deep snow. The man was out at one of his trail cabins, so I took off after him. I was on skis at the G-pole between the dogs and the sled when I came into sight of the trapper's trail cabin across the creek. The trapper's dogs began to bark, and he came out, grabbed a .30-06 that leaned against the cabin wall, pumped five cartridges out into the snow, and went back into the cabin, shutting the door behind him. I seldom went armed when on patrol. Over the years, I've had a few situations where gunplay could have occurred. Once, a Scandinavian was standing behind a cabin door. When I kicked the door open, he was standing there with a .30-06 rifle in my gut with the safety off. He was shaking. I stood quietly and stared him down. He threw the rifle on the bunk. I checked, and there was a cartridge in the barrel, ready to fire. He got three months. In this case, by cranking the shells out in the snow, the trapper had clearly told me he didn't plan to use a rifle on me. As usual, I was unarmed. I left the dogs and sled where they were, made my way to the cabin, and knocked on the door. The reception I got was the least, the one I least expected. Come in, he called. I went in. On the floor lay a fresh-killed calf moose. Where's the cow, I asked, and he said, out back of the cabin. A couple days later, we were all headed for the nearest U.S. commissioner, Mrs. Hyde, who happened to be a very competent and conscientious elderly lady. Five dog teams were ahead of us, each owner in the same brand of trouble. There seemed to be no ill will against me and the bunch. We all stopped at the same roadhouses, brewed tea for lunches, and one big kettle. Arriving at the seat of justice, the court action was taken care of in one long day. I happened to be in the local pool hall that night, and everyone there was talking about the five guys who went to jail that day. One, named Nolan, said, I'd like to know what that old hen would do to me if she ever caught me up there. That brought a laugh from everyone. A year later, I caught Nolan in a violation and took him to Mrs. Hyde's court. She read the warrant and asked to him and asked, How do you plead? Oh, I'd done it. I guess I deserve the maximum, he admitted. She took off her glasses and said, Now you're going to find out what this old hen is going to do to you. I just about fell through the floor. No one thought I told her, but I hadn't. Someone else had spilled the beans. Sam wasn't the only one to use a plane in his work. The, the trappers were hiring pilots. Uh, the mail teams that used to be carried uh, by, on dog sled, um, the, the, the mail was being carried by planes. Um, the foot travel, dog sled travel, um, boat travel, that was all kind of... Um, completely changed when the airplane made its way into uh, the bush of Alaska and it was it was one of those things where it was a tough time for a lot of people especially the people who had established roadhouses um, along these trails where that were separated but usually by a day's travel apart and uh, those were essential at the time but when planes came in people didn't need to stop at the roadhouses they'd just fly out to their trap line or fly out to the village or or back or to town uh, so it was a lot of changing going on um, just want to read a little uh, section here about uh, a local trapper and a little bit about roadhouses another local character who for many years lived alone on the shore of Minchamina Lake was Hjalmar Slim Carlson tall, slim Swede. 
He was always in trouble with the game laws. He raised a big garden and kept up to 18 dogs, which he fed with fish he caught with a gillnet from the lake. I once walked in on him, surprising him as I had on previous walk-ins. I asked to see his license. He couldn't find it. Slim, you've been warned several times to have one. This time, you're in trouble, I told him. Give me time. I'll find it, Slim promised in his strong Swedish accent. The nearest licensing agent at Diamond was 18 miles away. I knew Slim would rush to buy his license as soon as I left. My job was to fly to Diamond to see if he actually had bought a license. I didn't particularly care whether he beat me. I took plenty of time, warmed the airplane, and took off, headed for Diamond, while Slim took off with his 18-dog team. Halfway, oil pressure dropped on the swallow. I had a broken oil line. I quickly landed and shut her down. Oil streaked the snow on my landing run, and it was still dripping. I scooped up all the oil-soaked snow I could, heated it over my plumber's pot, separated the water, and poured the oil back into the engine after repairing the broken copper tubing oil line. I arrived at Diamond before the day was out, but after buying his license, Slim had left. My mission was accomplished. Slim was really a good guy, and he's always glad to see me. It was a good excuse for him to cook up a good feed. We would sit and eat and have a pleasant conversation. He was a poker player, apparently not a good one. While playing, he would get drunk. He caught $6,000 to $7,000 worth of fur every year. In spring, after selling his fur, he commonly planned to go to Sweden to see his folks. I saw him in Ninana several times when he was liquored up, and he told me what it was going to happen when he got to the old country. He'd walk up to the gate and open it. His folks would see him and they wouldn't recognize him. Tears ran down his cheeks each time he told me his story. He left Ninana with $5,000 to $6,000, plenty to get to Sweden in return, and do something for the old folks too. In Anchorage, he got into poker games. He'd have to wire Fowler, his fur buyer, in Ninana to send him money enough to return to Ninana. Anchorage was as far as he got on two or three attempts. One winter, he cut his left thumb off while splitting firewood. He tried to sew it back on, holding the severed thumb in his mouth as he plied needle and thread, but it didn't work. He told me that because of the pain, for 12 days he never slept. Then he got terribly tired and the pain started easing, allowing him to sleep. He went to sleep in daylight and woke up in daylight. He didn't know how many days had passed. He pickled his thumb and delighted in showing it to sometimes horrified visitors. Poor old Slim, always in trouble with the game laws, was basically a decent man. Years later, I was at Minchamina one winter day, flying a bush plane for Wien Airlines, my game warden days behind me. A local rugged individualist was helping me put logs under the skis, cover on the wings, tie down ropes under tail and wings. In short, he was working his head off helping me put the plane to bed for the night. We had no conversation. A civil aeronautics employee standing near noticed this and gathered we didn't know each other, so he introduced us. The trapper replied, I got no GD use for an SOB game warden. The fact that I was no longer a game warden made no difference to him. In his eyes, I was always a game warden. The CAA man looked confused and couldn't seem to figure the situation out. With the trapper standing near, I explained, Jim and I have been bad friends for many years. No more was said, but Jim and I continued to work together harmoniously to prepare the plane for the morrow. The CAA man never did figure it out. A man named Olson ran the Lone Star Roadhouse between Minchamina and McGrath. He'd been a dog team driver, trapper, and prospector until old age caught up with him. He then settled down to winters in his roadhouse on the Fairbanks-McGrath Trail, 
where he cooked and cared for overnight travelers. His supplies arrived in the spring to be put on the only boat that would take them to Lake Minchamina. He, they then remained at Minchamina until October when a dog team could freight them to Lone Star over the trail. Hotcakes, coffee, bacon, and two eggs were $2.50. There was also moose and caribou stew, which was always good. At two fifty per meal, this was not all out of line when considering the distance and transportation involved in getting supplies there. I was at Lone Star Road House. It was at Lone Star Roadhouse that I learned why old timers didn't like fresh eggs. They were used to cold storage eggs, which might be as much as a year old, and which picked up a unique, strong flavor. I could taste Lone Star eggs all day long. With them, you sure got your money's worth. One occasion, I was at the Lone Star for nearly a week. When I returned to Fairbanks, I went to the Model Cafe, ordered two fried eggs. They were, of course, fresh, but they were so flat I couldn't taste them. However, it didn't take long to get for me to get used to fresh eggs again. With the coming of airplanes, which hauled mail, freight, and passengers, the death throes of the old trails were not prolonged. Traffic on them soon disappeared, ending the days of far-flung roadhouses. A big white sign with black letters I once saw at a remote roadhouse told the story. It read, Aviators trade not solicited here. It didn't help. The airplanes won. So it was a different time, and, and uh, time, times changed quite fast. Um, but just like anything else, time, people have to change with the times to keep up. When spring came and the ice broke up and the rivers were running again, it was time for trappers to get that fur back down river into the nearest trader, into the nearest village, sell fur, resupply for the next year. And that was a time where uh, for uh, a warden trying to enforce the game laws, it was quite an opportunity to, uh, to patrol and catch people as they're coming into town. So that's what Sam planned to do on the Nuitna River Patrol. He says, um, I planned a game commission patrol down the Yukon and up tributary streams, and on May 23, 1937, Game Warden Greg Collins and I left Fairbanks in the shovel-nosed boat with a load of camp gear and plenty of groceries. We stopped at Ninana to take on extra gasoline and oil for our outboard motor and found the folks that were also cleaning up after the flood. They're also cleaning up after the flood. At Tanana, the Yukon River's banks were piled high with ice, and huge blocks of ice were scattered about the streets of town. We were anxious to get into the mouth of the Novi, the Nuitna River, before the upriver trappers came out of the hills. From Tanana to the Novi, the Yukon River was walled in by ice towering high above the river level, and there was only one place where we could get ashore. As luck would have it, at that place lived an alien who had three big illegal bear traps, 21 firearms, and no license. We relieved him of his property. An alien in those days has to have a license to possess firearms. We sank the dangerous traps in the Yukon River. We entered the mouth of the Novi early in the morning on May 28th, and soon met the first boat with two trappers drifting down the river. An inspection turned up some contraband beaver. Um, these were beaver that were shot, not trapped which we took over for the government. The trappers signed a release. Upon determining they were out of practically all supplies and gasoline, we gave them coffee, sugar, a few beans, and a can of milk. We also gave them a gallon of mixed gasoline so they could be sure to reach Cockrines on the opposite bank of the Yukon where they could buy needed supplies. We then waved them on. 
When they left, they appeared confused, as though they didn't know whether to be happy or sad. We had taken their contraband fur and the twenty-two caliber rifle which, rifle which they said they shot the beaver. On the other hand, we had given them enough gas to cross the Yukon and food and coffee which they had been out of for several weeks. We met more boats as we progressed up the Novi. Some had contraband and some didn't. We took the contraband fur and the guns with which they claimed to have shot the illegal fur. Then we gave those who were out of gas enough to put them across to Cochrane's, and those who were out of food got some of the necessities, along with a little coffee or tea. Many of the trappers were traveling with their families, and each babe in arms got a can of milk. In one boat, we found a small roll of contraband, along with several beat-up twenty-two caliber rifles. Among the guns was a new twenty-two caliber repeater without a scratch or a speck of rust. When I asked the chap which gun he'd shot the contraband fur animal with, he pointed to the new shiny one. Taken somewhat aback by his, this honesty, I waited a minute or two and picked up one of the older guns. No, not that one, he said, the new one. I tried to give him one more out and asked, are you sure? He replied, I should know which gun I used. Of course, then I had to confiscate the new one. Nearing high ground, 40 miles upriver, we saw four foot lengths of steamboat wood floating through the forest. It had washed up from the Yukon, where it had been cut and piled on the banks for sale to steamboats. The woodcutters took a terrific beating that year. One day we saw a rabbit floating down the river on a log. He was doomed if he continued upstream. We pulled near and to our surprise he leaped out of the boat, onto the boat. He cowered under his seat but raised up and looked out over the river now and then. We were within a mile or two of high ground when he leaped out of the boat toward a nearby bunch of foam and floating brush. We soon came to a trapper's cabin on the bank. Water lapped at its eaves. On its sod roof were only slightly fewer than one million field mice. Nevertheless, we tied the boat to the cabin and moved in amongst them. They were friendly little fellows, and as soon as we opened the grub box, they swarmed into it. We had to stand to eat, and cooking was impossible. Every time we opened the chuck box, we found a couple mice in it that had been shut in from the previous opening. They didn't seem to mind. Then a strange thing happened. Promptly at 7 o'clock that evening, every last mouse ran off the roof, leaped into the water, swam into the woods. In one hour, they all came swimming back and swarmed onto the roof again. Then at 7 o'clock the next morning, they repeated their trek into the woods. We were packed and loaded when they returned, and as they again clambered under the roof, we shoved off, leaving some leaving some cold hotcakes, which we hope they enjoyed. About noon, we arrived at high ground on the Novi and went ashore and pitched camp. As we unloaded the boat, we found about a dozen of our little friends from the cabin roof had come along too and were doing quite well. We camped at a bend where we could look both up and down the river and divided the time into watches to catch up on sleep. According to our list, one trapper was left upriver and we figured he would show up soon. After a time, he drifted around the bend and we hailed him ashore. In his boat, in a bed of grass, was a freshly killed moose. His three dogs were eating off one end, and he was eating off the other. Flies were eating all over it. By the time he hit the bank, he was explaining why he'd killed the moose. Except for the moose, he'd been out of food for ten days and was hungry. He was tall, lean, John Lassian, a good-natured Scandinavian, probably in his late sixties. He kept apologizing for shooting the moose. He seemed to think I would see to it he was locked up forthwith with the key thrown into the Yukon. I finally convinced him that the kill was legal under the circumstances. In Alaska, game can be killed for food when there is no other food available. We fed John three times in three hours before he left our camp, and each time he filled up on coffee, 
hotcakes, bacon, and eggs. He was so hungry for such food that he was frantic. He ate like a pig, grease running down his chin. Since we were not going any farther upstream, we gave him a good supply of food and plenty of gasoline. He had no contraband. He was very much respected along the river. Back in the Yukon River, we stopped at Ruby and went to Galena, Koyukuk, and Nulato. All were hard hit by the flood. At Nulato, there was still water in Pop Russell's store. We tied our boat to his door and moved in anyway. Since there was nothing we could do because of the flood, we volunteered to help Pop clean up. That was a big order. Four shelves which stretched the length of the trading post had collapsed, dumping their contents into the water. They'd held many cans, cases of canned goods, and of course all labels came off. No one could tell what was in the cans. So that was the Nuitna River Patrol. The next story is about a big bust in the McGrath area. In early April 1938, a few weeks after our adventures with Bob Dunn and others, I received an SOS from Benson, he was the other wildlife agent, asking me to hustle to McGrath. He had learned of a trapper who, according to local information, had cut a wide swath around the Game Commission regulations. I flew to McGrath and Benson and I interviewed several locals. We poured over maps and decided the Hungry Lake country needed a visit. We didn't know the half of it. We stocked the plane with plenty of good chuck and took to the air. We crossed the swift and stony rivers and landed on a lake south of the stony. Here we pitched camp and remained overnight. Next morning we followed a few trails on snowshoes and eventually walked into Hungry Village, which is now called Lime Village, population 38 in 1939, on the bank of the Stony River. It was exceedingly well named. Here we ran into a native priest who at the time was riding high, um, but wasn't being a very good guy. We returned to our camp for the night. Next morning, we took off to the north of the Stony, where from the air we cruised some of the country that we decided had some things that needed looking into. We landed on a lake and again pitched our tent. Next morning, I took one trap line while Benson took another. His, it turned out, was the longest. I wasn't to see him again for four days. We found 75 traps set for Martin and Fox. It was well into April, long past trapping season. We sprung traps everywhere we went. At every turn, we found moose killed for dog food and cached at intervals along the trails. I found a freshly killed cow moose with an unborn calf killed by the previous day for dog food. We found two trappers with poison. Don Block, the 14-year-old son of one of the trappers, also lived with them. They were driving 22 dogs, and all three were living on moose meat and beans. We told them we were going to take them to court. They wanted to leave the boy to look after the dogs in the trap line. No, you won't leave the boy here. We'll take him in too, I said. I wasn't going to arrest him or charge him with anything, but I certainly wasn't going to leave a 14-year-old boy, no matter how confident, alone on a wilderness trap line. We flew them into McGrath, and the commissioner gave them each a year in jail. Don Block, the 14-year-old, stayed with Benson for six months, and he grew like a weed. He then stayed with me and my wife until his father got out of jail. While he lived with us, I told him he could eat whatever he wanted, and he was always going to the refrigerator. On a balanced diet, that kid grew to be over six feet tall and weighed 200 pounds. He had the best temper and the best outlook possible. He went to school, and we had no problems with him. He got along well with the other kids. He was a very good boy. He eventually became a licensed pilot, perhaps because of my influence. The next several days were tough ones 
for both of us as we got onto another poison-using, law-violating trapper, but we stuck to it and ran out all the trails we could find, including several single snowshoe tracks. It was appalling to see the destruction of wildlife that had been dealt out by that irresponsible man in this wilderness where game was abundant. We ended in a cabin on the Stony River, low on Chuck. We were reduced to eating beans fortified by illegally killed moose meat we had seized. Our last batch of beans turned sour and started pushing hunks of our moose meat out of the kettle. We had things pretty well rounded up with the violator in custody, and with him we returned to our tent camp and our airplane. The sun was out full blast and the trail was melting. We struggled on, tired and wet, finally reaching our tent. As we crawled into our sacks, I, obser I observed, It sure is getting dark early this evening. Take off your sunglasses, Sam, Benson told me. We were both near exhaustion. We flew to McGrath with the trapper and our evidence and readied for court. When he saw the evidence, the U.S. Commissioner was shocked and in no mood to temporize. He delivered a scathing rebuke to the culprit and handed him a stiff sentence. I steamed up and the next day left McGrath for Fairbanks. Weather was threatening with big, thick, wet snow squalls sweeping through the valley. It became increasingly difficult to fly around them and I was caught in one and in a matter of minutes the airplane's wings picked up a heavy, rime slush. Then it congealed. The ship staggered and I had to do something quickly. I knew where there was a triangular pattern of three round lakes. They weren't very big, but they were adequate for an emergency landing. Despite the gloom and limited visibility, I found the first lake, but I had to land the ship hot, owing to the ice. As I touched down, the ice fell from the wings and the ship took the, to the air again, being relieved of the load and the malformed airfoil. A line of brush was approaching fast. Another lake was beyond it. I managed to boot her over the brush and land safely in the deep snow of the second lake. Two hours later, I took off, ducked more squalls and fog, and landed in mud at Fairbanks. So Sam transitioned from being a wildlife agent to a, a bush pilot, and he quit the uh, wildlife commission. There was uh, some things going on that he didn't agree with, um, some some people kind of skirting the rules uh in the upper management level and uh he uh he quit so immediately after he quit his friends at ween airlines offered him a job for more money as a bush pilot flying around in the remote villages of interior alaska and sam was just perfect for the job he was a really great skilled pilot um, very, had very good judgment. He was really friendly and people loved him. So um, there's a whole section in this book that we won't get into about Sam, uh, Sam the Bush Pilot. Uh, but lots of adventure, lots of different things going on. Uh, just a really short reading here um, about, about the times, how the times were changing with the planes and things, things kind of moving forward in Alaska. Sam says, Rural Alaska was changing fast. A few prospectors were still scattered about, and many trappers, but they soon began to leave the hills for construction jobs. Along with World War II's drain on manpower, the building boom was just getting started, and before long I was hauling passengers out of the river villages and packing very few of them back. So that's, uh, that's kind of uh, you know part of the change where fur prices weren't doing as well. Um, it was easier to live in town. There was more work there. And uh, only the people that really, um, really loved that lifestyle more than anything else in the world were the ones that stayed. Um, 
couple of other quick uh, passages. I thought this one was pretty cool because um, a guy that, that I, I don't know too well, um, but I consider him a friend already who lives up in that area. This was, uh, I believe it was his wife's grandfather that was mentioned in this little passage. And when Sam was a bush pilot, he was flying. Uh, he did a, did a little stint with the, uh, the government um, as part of a survey crew. And he was flying the surveyors around, and, and they did a bunch of work in uh, the middle of winter because they needed to use the stars to uh, sort of uh, make these determinations of different angles to determine the exact latitude and longitude of different areas on the map. So they had to have clear, starry nights, and they, um, they used a time that they gathered from the BBC radio combined with the locations of the stars and the different angles at specific times to determine exact latitude and longitude, which was pretty cool. Um, but they, they ended up landing on this remote lake in the middle of nowhere, um, essentially at night. And um, it says, they, just, just after they landed, while I was taking care of the ship, the others dragged the tent out, and Tim Wallace had it up so fast and so neatly that it impressed me as much as it did the Air Force boys. We were boiling coffee and heating the beans when across the lake, through falling snow, we saw a light bobbing among the trees. It neared, and soon a voice hailed, Is it Sam? Are you all right? Is there any place in Alaska where they don't know you? Lieutenant Frank Hank Craigle, who hailed from Connecticut, wanted to know. Not around here, I said. No one else with a plane would likely be out here this time of year and on a night like this. By then the light had reached camp. It was carried by Philip Peter, another native trapper whose cabin was three miles away. We had, he had heard us circling, thought we might be in trouble, and had come to see whether he could help. That was the spirit of the North, and it made an impression on the Air Force guys. Philip had dinner with us, and when he returned to his cabin, he carried with him some real luxuries for a bush trapper. Sam made all kinds of different friends um, out there. He was just such a friendly guy. A fun-loving guy, and he always liked to visit with people and hear stories. Um, one more we'll talk about is uh, a letter written about Sam from Sidney Huntington, uh, famous from the book Shadows on the Koyukuk. Sidney was uh, one guy that lived one incredible life, and I wanted to, to read a little bit about what, what Sidney said about Sam. A letter dated October 10, 2005 came to me from Sidney Huntington, who's lived all his life in and near the Koyukuk River Valley. In 93 with Sidney, I wrote about his life. This is Jim uh, Reardon talking. In the book Shadows on the Koyukuk, A Native's Life Along the River. Sidney wrote, We of those days all remember Sam O. White. He knew everyone, and we all knew him personally. He had very good relations with all people. Furthermore, he was not hated by anyone that I know of. He was the first game warden to use an airplane in enforcing the laws and regulations. He was always fair and helpful. About the time Sam arrived, the law on beaver was changed. Suddenly we could only trap them, not shoot them as we had always done. The difficulty was, no one knew how to trap beaver through the ice when their fur was prime and the season was open. Sam taught people in villages along the Koyukuk and elsewhere how to trap beaver under the ice during the winter season. His beaver set was called the Sam White Beaver Set. And it worked pretty fair, too. 
Some of us developed modifications of his system, but he got us started on the right track. The snare came into play later, also for Beaver Under the Ice. There was a Sam White snare set that didn't work too bad. We experimented and improved that set too. Sam greatly respected the elderly natives of the interior. The moose bag limit was one. He knew the Indians used moose hides from pregnant cows killed during late March because they make the best skins for clothing. Such skins, stretched from cow carrying her calf, are more uniform in thickness than other moose hides. He was aware that some individuals use more than one moose a season. He never asked questions of them. He was strict in his enforcement of closed trapping seasons for mink, marten, fox, lynx, beaver, and wolverine. Thoughtful trappers realized that trapping seasons were established by the Game Commission for the time fur was prime, thus more valuable. Sam regularly seized unprimed furs on the theory that they were taken when the season was closed. He was also strict in enforcing the catch limits for beaver because they'd been shot out in some areas and needed a chance to rebuild. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, a few pieces of the story that is Sam O. White and the things that he experienced in Alaska during this time. Um, Sam passed away in uh, 19... Um, uh, when was it? He passed away when he was approximately uh, 1976. And I think he was 80-something years old at the time. Uh, he lived a long, full life. He, he was one heck of an adventurer. He saw more of Alaska than maybe any other person. Uh, very well-loved. Um, and he did a lot. And, and by writing all these things that, that Jim Reardon was able to put together uh, into this book, Sam really gives us a unique insight into the lives of the different characters um, who were trappers back in the early days in Alaska. And... I know this is trapping today. Some of you might think, well, maybe he should start calling this trapping yesterday podcast. Um, but I think it's cool and I think it's important. There's so much history out there. And uh, it's something that's easily forgotten if it's not written down and we don't take the time to read it and listen and remember uh, a lot of that history. Um, I think it helps us to uh, to understand where where we started um, in, in the whole trapping industry, how things got started, where they began, and how things have evolved over time. Um, it, it's, uh, it's really important to me. I think it's cool. So anyway, uh, that was a very long-winded episode, and I apologize for all my misreading and stuttering and everything else. Um, uh, but, but hopefully you found it pretty cool. The book is called Sam O. White, Alaskan by Jim Reardon. It's uh, not the easiest book to find, but you get on Amazon, um, Abe Books, a few other sites online, and you should be able to find a copy. I think mine cost me 20 or $30. Um, excellent, excellent book. So check it out. And thank you for tuning into the Trapping Today podcast. Um, I appreciate having you here listening in. Until next time, um, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode.